Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Meaningful Learning with Dr. Samantha Cotrera podcast. Many of you know that I started this podcast as a way to share academic conference presentations, and I expanded this work in spring of 2020 in order to bring you the audio versions of the pandemic pedagogy conversations I've been hosting on my YouTube channel, Imagining a New We. For this upcoming school year, I'm going to be bringing you a second series that I'm hosting on YouTube called Source Saturday, where I talk with historians and creators and archivists about primary and secondary sources that they have familiarity with and to talk about what they read from them. Although the series does work better as a video because we screen share the sources we discuss it, there are many interesting elements of our conversation that do, that do work as a podcast, but I do urge you to check out the YouTube video so you can see the source for yourself. Like the Pandemic Pedagogy series, these podcast episodes are unedited conversations, so you may hear buffering or the repetition of a question or an answer if Zoom wasn't working that great, but the content remains fundamentally the same as the video. Enjoy this version of Source Saturday. Imagining a new we video series with me, Dr. Samantha Cotrera, a video series designed to help history teachers and other history educators teach history in ways that are more meaningful, transformative, and inclusive for their students. I hope you saw that cat going crazy. Um, we're beginning our new fall, um, our fall video series, and I think the cats are just very excited <laughs> that I get to be back on Zoom seemingly talking to no one, but I am talking to you. So we have three different video series in the fall, and this is one of them, uh, the Source Saturday series. That is a lot of S's that I'm going to need to get through. So if you saw my video on historic space, you know that a key element of my work for the last 15 years have been on this notion of historic space. We should get students to map out the grand narrative of a historical period. Uh, we can teach them a little bit about it, but then we spend the most time challenging that perception, that grand narrative with different histories. And sometimes it is histories that we don't know about, and sometimes it is looking at the histories we know about with a different, more critical lens. Um, and so this, this series is to bring in people, historians, uh, artists, creators, perhaps even elders. Please let me know if you have people in mind that you think would be good to talk to for this series that can bring in uh, an artifact or an, a created item or an archival record in order to talk about how it can challenge a particular narrative of a historical period. And today, as always, we have a great treat. We have Dr. Rebecca Bozerart. She is a professor at Guelph as well as Laurier. Um, her doctoral work that she did at York University focused on the 19th century, but now she's looking more at the 19th and 20th century, and she's going to be talking about cookbooks and how cookbooks can help us challenge a particular idea about World War One in particular and this notion of the homestead. So I can't wait to just dive right in and all of the sources that we talk about in the Saturday Source series, oh that's a lot of S's, um, <laughs> is available online for you to explore with your students as well. So let's go over to Dr. Rebecca. Rebecca, thank you so much for agreeing to participate in this new series, this Source Saturday series. I'm really looking forward to the, the source that you're bringing to us and the ideas that I know that you shared with me over email, and I think it's going to be a really great conversation. Uh, before we get started, um, do you want to introduce yourself? 
Sure. Um, so my name is Rebecca Bozart. I have a PhD in Canadian history from York University. I have been an adjunct professor at the University of Guelph uh, since 2013, and I also teach in various departments and faculties at uh, Wilfrid Laurier University, and sometimes you'll find me at Seneca College and King's College at Western. Um, and I teach a little bit of everything, but everything is historically focused. Um, I, my doctoral dissertation was about uh, women's leisure activities in late 19th and early 20th century at small town Ontario. And that small town focus is still a part of my research today. Uh, generally, I look at issues in rural Ontario, small town Ontario, still late 19th century and 20th century. Issues about uh, gender, class, leisure, sport, um, food, uh, the First World War, and I'm also interested in uh, museums and museum work, and I have a bit of a background there as well. And I am a big proponent of bringing primary sources into the classroom, whether that is virtually as we're going to be doing, or that's in a physical way. Um, and I try whenever I can to get students into archival spaces. I find students really enjoy going into the archives and actually getting to handle primary sources uh, and documents. And sometimes they marvel that they didn't even know that these spaces were on campus. And so it makes for a really fun class and a really fun semester when students can actually really get in and engage with primary sources. Well, one of the many things that I've done is that I, um, was the, uh, uh, I ran the education and exhibition program at the Archives of Ontario for a few years. And we used all reproductions with students because I found too that students love the ideas of being able to like remix them. And what I find really exciting about this moment of crisis that we're in and the opportunities we can get from it is that we can build on the digital humanities to take these digitized resources and allow for like a remixing and uh, kind of an exploration that you literally cannot do if you are in an archives because you, you know, you can't cut up a cookbook, for example, but you can if it's digitized right. and you print it out at home. And, um, and so who knows what will, who knows what kind of inspiration might come from our conversation today. So thank you for bringing that in, that part into the introduction to who you are in this conversation. You're welcome. And I originally got in touch with you about like 19th century and you suggested a 20th century source. So why don't we get started? Um, I'm going to share my screen and you can tell us about the source that you wanted us to see. So um, we have three questions in this series and the first question is what is this primary source? So please tell us what is this primary source? So this is a um, cookbook slash instructional manual. Uh, it is uh, from the Ontario Department of Agriculture in conjunction with the Ontario Women's Institutes. Uh, it was published in 1917. So it is a uh, First World War era uh, primary source. This is a source that I have used in both my food history course a third year level course 
and my um, distance education course Canada in the First World War. So it's great that it's it's been a digitized source, so easily accessible for students. Um, I like this source because it's short, but within it we learn so much about the period. So its purpose is to educate housewives about using alternative rains in their baking. So instead of using uh, the traditional white flour to make their breads, uh, the ODA and the Women's Institutes got together to provide these resources as uh, food alternatives. So to save the white flour for bread to be made for soldiers serving overseas, at home, women should focus on using alternative grains in their baking as their contribution to the war effort. So it is a compilation of different recipes that for the most part don't use white flour and instead use all of these different sorts of alternative grains, um, rye flour, bran, graham flour, things like that. that things that were not uh, commonly used because the preference was always white bread with white flour. There's also a section about just baking at home uh, to maximize uh, efficiency and competency among housewives just to ensure that they're not wasting their ingredients. Do you know which page numbers that's on? I think it's at the back, yes? Uh, it's between the recipes and the section about the Women's Institute. Okay. So it's just after the recipes. Mm, here, I think. Yes, methods of making bread in the home. Mm -hmm. Oops, there we go. So within this, there is instruction about um, bread baking, which is interesting because probably someone reading this um, that is not trained in the period would think that women would have no problem baking bread at home and they should mm -hmm. know all of this stuff already. Um, and in a lot of cases, women did, but in some cases they didn't. So again, this was the government ensuring that Canadians are not wasting uh, food items because they were being um, controlled at the time in terms of how much uh, you should buy and consume. Yeah, that's really, it's interesting that you say that because, so I worked at a living history museum um, when I was an undergrad and it was a different time period. It was the mid 19th century. And, um, you know, everyone just kind of assumed that, that every woman during that time period could bake bread. And so we had one building that was like a hotel where people could uh, buy bread. And we would talk about that, the fact that people would come in and buy their bread. They, they wouldn't necessarily be baking it themselves. And that was a real shock to modern day people. Um, and mm -hmm. I think that's really interesting that you're bringing that into 1917 as well, because in 1917, there, for, for the most part, there would have been even fewer people where this was like, a daily thing that they were doing so that this I mean I don't know do we want to I don't know if you you know the history better than I do if we want to link it to the, like rise 
pun wasn't intended, but I will take the credit for this, the rise in sourdough baking during the pandemic as like something that you exactly. can tangibly work through and on. Absolutely. Mm. Yep. Yeah. And so can you tell, tell us more a little bit about what, like, what are the things that you read from the document? So yes, like the actual content in it, but what are the elements as a historian that you see from this document that you really want to ensure that gets pulled out when, when people are using it uh, for teaching? So when I assigned this source to my, um, to my students, I have a series of questions that I, I have them answer about it. Um, and one of the questions is, why are these recipes considered wartime recipes? Mm. What is unique about them? Um, and again, it's the fact that um, they do try to control the amount of white flour in them. And they show not even just grains, but also we see molasses instead of white sugar. So the ingredients tell us a lot about the state of the economy at the time, how the war was going for the Allies, uh, the state of Canadian agriculture at the time, about women's knowledge or lack of knowledge. Um, it's, I really try to get students to sort of read between the lines. Mm. So the fact that right at the beginning, it's for the housewife. So that's telling us about the domestic arrangements in Canadian homes, that women are the primary cooks in their homes. And it's also about um, class and literacy, assuming that women can read this document and understand it. Um, there's also a lot of patriotism in the document um, that women's role at this point was to support their nation and support the allies. And they did this from their kitchens. So saving the preferred ingredients for soldiers overseas um, because it was more important to feed them so they could continue on with the war effort. But women also had a role to keep the home fires burning, to keep food on the table, to keep the Canadian economy going. So it talks a lot in that sense about what women are doing in the war. And that's for me, one of the most important things about this document and something that I would really want students to get from it, that war is not just about men as soldiers, that there are lots of different kinds of soldiers fighting in the First World War. And there were what I call kitchen soldiers. Mm. And so women had a very specific role to play and they were also enlisted in a way. Their work, their uh, labor, their knowledge, their culinary expertise. Um, the government wanted them to continue to contribute and help the allies in that way, in what women know how to do or were supposed to know how to do. Well, it's even too like the transformation of gender in a particular way, right? Like we're enlisting you in this, this vision of the way we need women, right? And I really mm -hmm. like that kind of 
kitchen soldiers and that women are being enlisted too. I think that's a really powerful way to to demonstrate the complexities of this period because if the argument, if the, the government is making the argument that we will win the war um, by having kind of everyone on board with this, then a big part of the mobilization of the, the nation is kind of these private domestic community-based spaces that, that, uh, that needs kind of an army of women to be able to say like, this is what we're doing and this is how we're doing it. Um, I think it's right. really powerful. Uh, I think it's really mm -hmm. powerful. Thank you, Rebecca. Yeah, I, I always try to instill in students you know, the, the notion that the war was fought on many fronts. Mm -hmm. And we can't underestimate the importance of the home front. And so much of what was happening on the home front, um, from women, from children, from workers, um, from volunteer groups, the war had to be fought in many, many different ways in order for that final outcome to be successful. And when I talk to students about the role that food plays in wartime, I see sometimes that sort of light bulb go off. They don't think about it. Mm -hmm. That when we're talking about history, that food can be an analytical tool. And through food, we learn so much about the historical periods that we're studying and the people that were living at these times. Um, you know, a lot of historians argue that in a lot of ways, food contributed to the outcome uh, of the war. Um, in Germany, there was, a, there was widespread famine and civilians were starving. And that was contributing to Germany eventually capitulating. Mm -hmm. And the Canadian government knew here at home, our civilians need to continue to eat and our soldiers need food as well. You can't fight a war if everyone is starving. Yeah, and like, um, I like, you know, in thinking about that the war has to be fought on many fronts and that there has to be kind of willing, willing soldiers, willing participants. When I look at the appendix about the demonstration and lecture courses, it is very much, it's very much the same type of training that I think that many like young men and boys were doing before they even enlisted to be able to say like, we're gonna be ready. And when I look at some of these courses, because it includes not only cooking, but also home nursing, first aid, sewing. And again, like we were talking about earlier, like, I mean, don't, like wouldn't women during this period know about, you know, like how to work a stove, but some may not have, like that wouldn't have been something they, like that they, they would have known in the same way that we just kind of expect them to know. So I find that a really interesting element too, that this is um, a promotional brochure for these courses as well in that kind of training of the kitchen soldier, if I may. Mm -hmm. That's another thing I really like about this cookbook is this little end piece um, that focuses on the work of the Women's Institute, mm -hmm. which in itself is a really interesting organization uh, to analyze during this time. Um, it's not explicit in this section, but uh, a good chunk of the Women's Institute's mandate was to try to reform rural Ontario. Mm. 
and to educate rural women, assuming that rural women needed to be educated. It was part of the sort of rural revitalization um, program that was happening. Um, uh, a mesh with, with elements of race at all? Um, not so much race, um, but definitely class. Mm. Because if you look at the memberships of women's institutes across Ontario, generally in towns and rural areas, it was the, um, the well-known women, the women that had some clout that were often the higher ups in these organizations. Uh, and they're the ones sort of distributing this, this information and this desire to educate others that they believed needed to be educated. Right. And then during wartime, that's just even, that's heightened even more. Uh, the women have to be at their best during the war um, as when they're contributing to the cause. Mm -hmm. So women may have known how to cook, but we're going to teach you wartime cooking. And we're going to teach you how to do it the best way in relationship to the war. But in doing so, we're also trying to make you a little less rough around the edges. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So along with cooking, they were teaching them, like you mentioned, um, first aid mm -hmm. and sort of all these different little uh, tasks or skills that were still considered inherently maternal. So things that women should sort of know already, but in a wartime context, just in case women were needed sort of beyond the home to help out even more. Yeah, you know, like this home nursing and first aid, um, you know, for women to easily obtain knowledge of how to care sick for the home um, and the expense that can be saved if the women of the house can handle the situation. Um, and yeah, it is interesting because of both what is assumed that is known and what is assumed that is not known. And I would think in a rural context, a lot of that kind of first aid and, um, uh, you know, uh, medical or, or treat or care of the sick would already be done in kind of a community way. So it's, it's interesting. I, I love that you're bringing in that, you know, like where that source is coming from because of that class dynamic that, that can come in and that you can read from this. I think part of it too is at this time, the image of the female nurse or caretaker was so glorified mm. and so i think that's part of it as well um like historians talk about after the war um a lot of young women want to be nurses they sort of are inspired by the nursing sisters and then some voluntary aid detachment work so i think that might be part of it as well there's this mm -hmm. dialogue happening in during the war about um the nurse and her important role. So I think that's contributing to this emphasis on women knowing how to take care of others in a medical context. Right. Yeah, that's really that's really interesting. There's so much more layers to this than than you would assume in this kind of 16 page document. Um, so that's what I love. It's small, yeah. it's short, but so much can be learned from it. Mm -hmm. uh, so the last question is, and like, you certainly have already 
you already kind of talked about this, but you know, when I talk about historic space that we need to, you know, get students to have be really are not articulate, but they need to be able to articulate a grand narrative in order for us to then challenge this grand narrative with different elements of history, different complexities in history. I think that that can lead to a lot more space for what I like to talk about on this video series, which is more meaningful, inclusive, and um, uh, critical, radical uh, approaches to history. So in that vein, um, can you articulate, although you, are, you already have, the ways that this source really challenges that historic space, that historical period of World War One? or that that teachers can bring into their classrooms? So I think it's a nice little break um, from that traditional narrative of the white male soldier in khaki um, on the Western Front in the trench in France, um, which is probably what most students would say they think of when you ask them to think about Canada and the First World War. Those images are really ingrained, I think. And so with this source, it's a new historic space to talk about. It forces students to think about the war in a much bigger and more complex way. So it expands the historic space that the First World War is taking up. Um, and brings it back to Canada because so much that happens during the First World War is about Canada at home and how Canada here at home changes. Mm -hmm. And like I said, it invites discussions about women. What are the different roles that women are playing in the war? Or organizations like the Women's Institute or government bodies like the Ontario Department of Agriculture, and then the meshing of, of, of government and these social organizations, which is really interesting to me. Um, and then, as I said, just talking about food. Food in the First World War is a very new study. Um, so I think it invites that as well. And then also the agricultural and rural aspect, which also gets often left out of the narrative when talking about the First World War. Um, food is coming largely from Canada's rural areas and farmers had quite a dilemma to face during the First World War. They were being pressured to enlist, but then being pressured to grow food. Right. So that's a whole other uh, conversation to have. And I also like that I think students would benefit from connecting this source to what's going on today. Mm -hmm. If they look at this cookbook and they might be able to see some similarities to what we're going through today in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, the whole emphasis on conservation, food conservation, using alternatives, cooking from your pantry, saving money. Those are all things that we have heard recently here in Canada, especially at the beginning of the pandemic, when people were out panic shopping and flour and yeast 
flew off the shelves. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people turned to alternative things to bake besides just plain white loaves of bread. Um, you know, we're not in a wartime context, but we're hearing some of those same messages to conserve, to watch the food supply, to not hoard, uh, things like that. So students might be able to find some similarities or comparisons there. Um, and I wonder too, if maybe some students picked up an interest in baking during the pandemic, maybe they saw their parents baking, their elder siblings baking, um, and they might maybe wanna try some of these recipes. That's something that I always do with my students. I prepare a recipe from a cookbook that we're talking about so that they can taste history. Um, so it might maybe spark something in them, especially if a student has a blossoming interest in food or cooking. You know, and I think another part of that is like, you know, this was published in 1917. What if we were in year three of COVID, for example, like what would be the things, like what would be the things that we would be thinking about more and things like conservation and um, conservation of particular items and um, thinking more kind of internally in your home about if we, if we don't know when this is over, how do we kind of mitigate that? I think that's really interesting too, to be able to place it in a trajectory because now we are in a particular moment, but we're like six, eight months into it. I was talking with someone today about like, we don't expect to go, like it'd be weird to not go back to an office for a whole year, but that might happen. So like now that we are, we're still kind of in the new phase, but rather the panic phase, what, what happens in these different phases? And I think that that the different phases of the war, we can kind of feel that, we can feel the emotions of that a little bit differently because we're in a particular moment as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think too, it would maybe help students put things into perspective. Mm -hmm. um, yes, we are only, we're six, eight months, whatever into it, um, but we feel like it's been so long. Yeah. And if they're reading this, these people who are reading this have been at war for three years. Right. Um, so if they can try to imagine the emotional trauma of three years of, of stress and anxiety and, and food rationing and food conservation, um, might help to put present day into perspective mm -hmm. um, a little bit. Yeah, for sure. Um, thank you so much for bringing this source to this discussion. I think it's really interesting and, and valuable for uh, challenging the historic space or broadening it, like you said, of the post of the, uh, of the World War One period. Um, I think too about, or it makes me think differently about the war posters I've seen about conserving different food items and um, I'll provide a link both to this, um, to this source for everyone to be able to teach with it themselves, but also to some um, war posters that can also kind of make those conversations together. And although I don't necessarily like want slices of bread mailed to me, I, 
I am very intrigued if <laughs> anybody tries these recipes and how they and like like how they are. I would love to try them, but um, but please don't mail me bread. <laughs> I, I wouldn't recommend making the health bread recipe. I think it's on page six. Okay. Um, health bread. I made that for my students um, in the winter, right, right before COVID happened. I was able to still get this recipe in um, because it was one that was fairly straightforward, even though I did have to search a bit to find the gram flour. Um, it was very dry, <laughs> very uh, bran-y. Bran-y? Um, healthy, do you mean? <laughs> pardon? Healthy, do you mean? Healthy, yes, very healthy. <laughs> um, and it's funny, students are usually good sports when I offer these recipes and, and I get sort of mixed reviews and I invite them to be honest because it doesn't bother me. Yeah. Um, and sort of the, the consensus was, oh, it's not the the best thing I've had and it's not the worst thing I've had. So, um, but again, it's, it's perspective, right? It's like, you know, this, this is something that we, they were being asked to do. And would you want this on your table every day? Yeah, probably not. But at the time you did it because it was expected of you mm -hmm. and you didn't want to seem unpatriotic. Well, I mean, so. also like how, I mean, I don't really want to use the word evolution, but I'm going to use it here, just recognizing it's not the right word, but like the evolution of the foods that we eat. Like we might say like, oh, this, you know, a brand bread is a brand bread now as it was a hundred years ago, but it's not. Our food has changed so much. And I mean, this is going to go very big, but when we think of things like climate change, right? We um, and, and like the different pesticides in our foods and or eating organic and things like that. Like this demonstrates the ways foods change so much over time and how paying attention to that helps us make sense of our own particular life and moment to, for us to think like, oh, this isn't just us at this particular time. Like we just happen to be experiencing these things at this moment, but that there has been a series of choices and developments over the last hundred years that, that mean that the health bread that we eat now from a coffee shop that has like organic this and organic that and spurry grains and the $7 is way different than a health bread um, in 1917. And like, I think that can put things in perspective too. So yeah, don't eat the health bread, but you maybe give it a try. <laughs> Like, it wasn't terrible. Um, <laughs> I, the point that you just made about sort of comparing past and present in terms of how we define um, sort of what's ideal and what's healthy, like this book says right at the beginning, um, basically white bread is the preference of the time. Mm -hmm. And at this time, white bread was considered um, a pretty healthy bread. Right. And instead to deal with wartime rationing uh canadians are being asked to use different kinds of of grains and that's often how i i end uh one of my lectures on food in the first world war is i ask students to think about health today and yesterday mm -hmm. and even though at the time canadians may not have wanted to change their eating habits and adopt these alternative foods 
using 21st century standards and understandings of health and nutrition, they actually adopted very healthy diets mm. as a result of wartime conditions. More fish, more grains, more homegrown fruits and vegetables, things like that. Um, so I, I find that really interesting. And again, students usually don't make that connection. Yeah. That we often think that historical diets are, are terrible compared to ours today. Um, but a lot of these recipes in this cookbook are not. Mm -hmm. They're using the grains that nutritionists today say we should be eating. Yeah, and like that also for me in my head like links to our earlier part of the conversation about notions of class, like healthy mm. eating. How are these, how are the conversations about healthy eating? How do they, how are they class-based? Like how does it look different now than it did a hundred years ago? Who was, who was like the target of the notion of being healthier and, um, and who who's the one who were the people that were supposed to change or had the ability to change their eating practices you know like because mm -hmm. um anyway i just that brings up so many interesting things so thank you so much rebecca for bringing this source to this conversation um i'm really excited to hear uh how teachers bring this up and um and and what kind of elements their students can be able to bring to this so thank you so much Right. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, and um, I will link to uh, I, I will link to this source. But any other sources that you think are kind of satellite around this, I think it would be great. Um, and uh, if you and you're on Twitter, and so I will also connect people with your yes. um, Twitter account if they have any other follow-up questions. So thanks again. Thank you. It's fun. Yeah. All right. Well, have a great afternoon. Thank you, you too. Okay, bye. Bye.